Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahay. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode of the program. I have the pleasure of speaking to some incredible people, some leaders who are at the very top end of their game from around the world. And today is a person from within the United Kingdom. I think I've just timed it perfectly to speak to this individual. Dan Edwards, uh, I came across him uh, on LinkedIn a while ago now. We've had a few conversations and uh, he's at a very, very exciting point in his life, to be honest. And he reminds me of how it felt when I left the police service after 32 years. So Dan has been involved in the education sector for, uh, I think, around about 2010, working in both primary school and secondary school uh, education. For the last five years, he's worked in school leadership and he finished his work in education last Friday as an executive principal. Uh, And Dan is uh, as inspired as I was to work with organizations around creating the right kind of culture to get the very best out of your people. Dan, first and foremost, welcome to the show. Uh, And secondly, congratulations on a new life. (laughs) Thank you very much. It already feels a little bit surreal. I think it will feel more I think it would feel a lot stranger when term restarts and I'll notice that friends of mine are returning back to the classrooms and the offices and pu- I see pupils walk down the road yeah. uh, back to school and I'll be there sitting there going, crikey, either I've made the best decision ever or I'm going to miss it wholeheartedly. But <laughs> I don't know, either way, it was the right time for me at the right moment. So yeah, it'll be very strange come September. If my experience is anything to go by, I think you'll have a bit of both. You'll have a bit of... I used to be there, I used to do that, I used to be somebody in that sector, and now I'm on this like uh, this journey, this lonesome journey, uh, all by myself. But uh, trust me, there's lots and lots of people on a similar journey, and you and I have already connected, and I'm sure that we'll connect with uh, lots of other great people. My wife's a teacher, so I, I know about this whole term mentality. She counts the whole year through terms. So she's yeah. like, five weeks to go. I'm five weeks to what? Five weeks to the next term break, yeah. you know? Um, so uh, she's particularly excited now because I think they've got like a week or so left at school. I don't even count it. Uh, uh, so she's got like two weeks, I think she said, without kids. Uh, now she's just preparing for the next year. But that's what your life has been like for the last, what, 10, 12, 13 years, hasn't it? Yeah, and I suppose it is very strange because, you know, the, the normal calendar of events doesn't really appeal because in some in some ways you are programmed in this kind of September to July kind of routine um and it is and it is nice and it is good and it is kind of useful in that way but it does feel that 
you know, it'd be nice to end a year when everybody does end a year and you kind of can make that kind of resolution or that reflection with everybody else rather than trying to wait to the end. So, no, it has been, uh, I think I my training year started in 2005. Um, I came into teaching very, very late. Um, I didn't particularly have the greatest suite of uh, GCSEs or qualifications when I left school. I wasn't probably the most academic. I uh, probably probably wasn't the best behaved. Um, but I ended up kind of going back to night school when I was about 28, getting my maths GCSE and the relevant bits and pieces together to then start my training in 2005. And, and dare I say it, it was... It was the hardest year, but the, just it was the best year because you knew that you'd made the right choice. It was that career for you. It's that thing of you know the shoes, you know, the shoes fit, fit, fitted really well, and and you just kind of went, yeah, I, I, this is where this is where I'm, where I'm heading, and this is where I need to be. You were working, uh, but you were going to night class to get your your math GCSE. But then, of course, you must have had to go and get your degree. Were you working while you were doing all of that as well? I managed to get my degree. Um, I managed to get through. I, I had a bit of a turbulent, turbulent would be the right word, sixth form time. Um, but I, I, I did a subject that I enjoyed. I was I worked within um, drama and theatre studies, and I thoroughly enjoyed that as a as a practice. And I and I went to university. Um, you know, had a really great time there. I went to university in Northampton, and I did a very interesting degree should i say um wasn't the very it wasn't the typical drama and performing arts degree it was something quite avant-garde and quite contemporary um but it was eye-opening and yeah unfortunately i had a degree but i didn't because of the the time period of which i was going to qualify i needed a maths gcse and i found maths completely alien to me when I was at school. I tried to get my maths GCSE, I failed, tried again, failed, lost interest, tried again, tried to do everything, but it was it was just completely out of my grasp. And so I was I resigned my fact to the fact resigned myself to the fact that teaching just wasn't gonna happen. And I ended up working within residential social care, working in uh, working with some of the most vulnerable children within Leicester and Leicestershire. Um and immediately then I knew that working with young children, working with children who had an element of disadvantage to their start in life, whether that be their own fault or you know by someone else, teaching was the way forward and opening a, a pen or open, giving them the opportunity to read or giving them the opportunity to write was something I needed to do. So yeah, I, every Tuesday evening I returned back to night school and I was taught by a wonderful gentleman called Jim. Uh, who got me through my maths, hook or by crook, he got me there. He did what many teachers who I thoroughly respected um, couldn't do along the way. And uh, and that was it. And that opened the door then to the graduate teacher program, as it was, where it was a, you know, it was a program for people who'd been in profession to go and retrain as teachers. And um, yeah, and like I say, that was the, that was the story. You were inspired by Jim. Um, which you know really feeds into this whole philosophy around how teachers are leaders, first and foremost. You know, throughout your the entirety of your life, some of the greatest influences in your life are, aside from your parents, are your teachers. And you, if you have a good teacher, you'll be inspired by them to do good things. If you have a, a bad teacher, they can actually 
mar you for the rest of your life. Um, and, you know, in your journey in education, what did you learn about leadership? I think for me, you, when you're, I suppose going back to my earlier time as a working within secondary schools, you know, bigger organisations, lots of stuff. And I suppose sometimes the propensity to maybe slightly feel quite anonymous within bigger organisations that you, you know, you are a part of a cog in a wheel. I taught a subject which was quite discreet. I was teaching drama and theatre studies. I was the only drama and theatre studies within the secondary school building. Um, and I think one of the things that I noticed was we had a change of principle um, in, the, in my final two years at that school who was able then to just start to recognise people beyond their titles or beyond their job description and actually start forging people together in a way which kind of really consolidated everybody. And, and rather than seeing being kind of pigeonholed in regards to various subjects, you know, the drama teacher, the English staff, the PE staff, all of a sudden we became, became one. And, and that was very powerful because it was something that I'd never noticed before on my journey. I'd always worked in schools which, you know, you did feel a little bit on the threshold of things. And I think when I started to move into my own journey of leadership, there was something quite powerful about that. And it was something that I took forward myself, you know, into, you know, into only last week you know, in regards to how I developed my team and, and how I wanted the school to feel was very much that it was people first. It wasn't about titles. It wasn't about hierarchy. It wasn't about, you know, whether what pay scale you're on. We were all people, all humans, there for one single thing, and that was to improve the life chances of children through education. That's brilliant. And, and you know, when you are collectively um, focused on the common goal, then I think there's so much synergy and so much energy that comes from that. I, I love how you describe uh, that principal who looked beyond the titles. I think you said, look beyond the title, look beyond the bounds of who you are. It reminds me of a, a quote that I think is one of the, the most inspiring quotes for me. I heard it back in 1990. I went on a, probably my first ever personal development course. And back in 1990, personal development courses were, you know, uh, not really out there, were they? Um, you, I almost had to do it in secret because people thought it was a bit woo-woo. But I remember on this personal development cor course that uh, this quote, which has resonated with me and almost sort of um, inspired me to be the leader that I am and I was. And that is that the mark of an outstanding leader is not how good a leader you are, but how many leaders you create, which really is what you're describing there that as a leader, what you did was to look to your team to say, how can I better my team? And for me, it's almost like a conveyor belt, isn't it? That we know that eventually we're going to fall off the conveyor belt and we need to know that there are other leaders following us on this conveyor belt to take up the posts that we were in. I think that's right. I mean, when I first came to my school, so I started my headship journey four and a half years ago, I was, I was, I would say, thrown in at the deep end. Um, I hadn't been ahead before. It was a challenging school. It was a ch well, it was a challenging school, um, and it had a whole raft of issues and problems and nuances and small bits of, you know, complexities that you needed to unravel. And I, and I think 
for me, the, the most important way that I approached it was I was not going to be spending my time trying to think about what I needed to be. Yeah. I didn't want to sort of go, if I go, you know, I thought if I spend my time trying to work out who I need to pretend to be as a head teacher or a persona, mm-hmm. I just rolled my sleeves up and said, right, this is me. I haven't really got a clue about what we're doing, but what we'll do is we'll all do it together, but I'll be the one that carries the can and I've got everybody's back. And I think for me, that was, that was really powerful. And you, you talked then about succession planning, you know, when uh, lots and lots of schools and lots of organizations, I'm sure is very similar to the police. You know, you might get someone drafted in who is a bit of a, uh, a hit man, a bit of a hero, head teacher or a hero, you know, chief constable who can just go in there, turn the ship around, and then actually when they leave, it just resets itself to where it was before because actually all they've done is they've not put a, thought about the succession of, as you say, the conveyor belt, who's going to carry the mantle further. So I was really pleased to leave with my deputy stepping up as acting principal and my acting principal, my assistant principal stepping up as deputy and one of my ex- more experienced teachers and st- stepping up their role. And as I was working over the, the, another school as well, that one of my assistant principals then became the head of school over there. So I think when you, when you think about leaving a place or leaving an organization at the right time, it's about, it's about thinking actually, have I, have I outgrown this? Isn't it all also about creating a culture that, uh, that is fertile, that continues to grow? Uh, so I think, I think how you've described it, and I have seen these in, in, in the police service and in other organisations where you get this sort of incredible leader that comes in, shakes a place up, gets it really efficient, creates whatever they create, and it, and it all performs very, very well. But what they haven't done is create a culture a culture that is a sustainable culture, that is a people-led culture where people are invested in that. So consequently, I mean, I'm guessing what you're going to see with, uh, with the schools that you were uh, responsible for is now that you've gone and your deputy has stepped up and everyone steps up one level higher, is that they will now take what you've done and build upon it. Here's hoping. <laughs> Let's hope they do. I suppose the way that we developed our schools and the way in which we developed the organisation was very much with a sense of collegiality. You know, it wasn't about my idea. It was about everybody yeah. having a sense of consultation, having a sense of agency, you know, being me being an advocate for the opinions of support staff, of premises staff, of administ- you know, administrative clerical staff all of those people still have a say in regards to how a school should run and i think sometimes schools are very much seen through the lens of how how good the teaching and learning is well that's you know it's one part of the scenario because if your school is unsafe and you know fails to have clean water coming through the drinking taps you know it doesn't really matter what goes on in the classroom you know if you're safeguarding procedures when a member of staff or a visitor comes into the school aren't up to scratch it doesn't matter how effective your curriculum is so it's about people noticing that although teachers are put on the forefront of the, the vision you know the the pr side of schools and education there's a whole lot of people behind the scenes who don't get the acknowledgement they need 
that is, is about successful school leadership. I've seen this in so many organizations, Dan. Um, you know, I saw it obviously in the police service where everything was seen through the eyes of a police officer when actually there's an incredible organization and support services that sit behind the police officer, allowing them to be able to do at the front line what they do. But without all of these other people, the police service would not have existed or performed. And I, I saw this very similar uh, thing with a, a culture diagnosis that I did with a healthcare provider only a couple of months ago. Uh, and they were saying there's this big sh this, uh, rift between the clinical staff and what they described as a corporate services staff. That's all the support staff that sit behind the clinical services. So all the clinicians got all the recognition, the reward, and uh, uh, it was always, always seen through their eyes in terms of how the organization moves forward. But actually the organization was making a lot of mistakes because they hadn't seen through the, the lenses of all of these other incredible staff and services that uh, were on offer. So I think the CEO there recognized that, which was a good thing. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the right kind of leader will know that whenever you're leading any kind of an organization, you have to see it through the collective eyesight or perspective of all members of your staff. And I think you've just alluded to it that as the leader, you don't have the monopoly on good ideas. And, you know, very often you have to test these ideas or welcome ideas from your staff. And that's for me is where cognitive diversity comes from. So did you have a process in mind by which you could collect the thoughts of your people, your staff, your, 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 your uh, workers to, you know, move the, the schools forward that you were responsible for? You saying they're not having the monopoly on ideas is completely, you know, true. And something that lots of leaders, I think, new to school leadership or leadership in general seem to forget very quickly, not out of, you know, um, not out of any sort of sense of, you know, pro, you know, ego, but more to the fact is that we, we're really reluctant in wanting to look like we're, you know, weak or look like that we need to speak to people to find out or how to fix things. Um, you know, we, we're seen as the top dog. We're seen as someone there who's got all the ideas and, you know, and I think that's really dangerous. Um, and I and I worry so. And I think we've spoken before. You know, we I worry a lot about you know a retention issue in education and, and as much as anything within the public sector. You see lots of experienced members of staff leaving the profession for for for, for many reasons. And with the best one in the world, we're seeing lots of people move into leadership probably too quickly. Um, who probably don't have that kind of understanding of themselves or understanding of their own kind of emotional intelligence to be able to mm. think actually i don't need to have all the answers i just need to be able to approach the right people and consult with the right people in, in my organization so you know when i was there you know people would come to me and say you know what should we do about lunch times because lunch times was pretty you know like, like most schools sometimes horrific um you know there was basketballs flying everywhere cricket you know all everything it was like running the gauntlet across one plate one side of the playground to the other <laughs> if you didn't have your head taken off by a rogue basketball you were you'd see that as a success i can imagine so rather than me coming up with the, coming up with how should we improve lunch time i spoke to the you know the the support staff who were in charge of dinner time and on on the playground every single day and and it's and it's those members of support staff who have 
historically been at schools for many, many years. You know, they've, they've been there because they work tirelessly in the background, you know, preparing lessons, supporting teachers who see the school in the truest and honest way and in the most, you know, warts and all manner. So it was a case of just speaking to people, walking around every single day. What do you think of this? Do you like this? Can I have a quick word with you? Can I just show you this? And actually through that, you know, through that just general ongoing dialogue and that gen- and its ongoing consultation, you're always capturing the voice of others, listening to them, finding out, what do you think of that? How did that go? How was that assembly? Was that my assembly okay? Not because you're kind of, you know, fishing for compliments, but you just want to make sure that you're doing the best by everybody. And actually when someone says to you, you could do this a little bit better or have you thought about this? You, you, you want to develop a culture in which you, people can feel comfortable to say, I can speak to the head or I can speak to the person in charge because actually they'll listen. And some of the best decisions we've made as a school have not come from me at all. And it, not naturally that it should, but actually through all of us sitting down together and listening. I think if you really analyse it, the vast majority of decisions aren't made by the top person. The vast majority of decisions are made by everybody else but the top person. Uh, And that for me, in that role of leadership, is about creating a culture where, and I'm talking about cognitive diversity, you know, I I steer towards the, the, the terminology of cognitive diversity rather than demographic diversity where we're chasing targets for one protected characteristic or not, for me to really get the culture changed is to be able to welcome difference of thought. And that, that's that got to be the utopia of where we want to get to. But when you have that culture, then all of these beautiful, um, wide variety of ideas can come, come through and the person at the top just keeps a hand on the tiller and steers in the right direction. And that surely for me, I used to laugh to say, you know, the higher up you go in leadership, the less busy you actually are you're more busy in your brain as opposed to being busy physically completely and i think if you've got the right people in the right places and you've got the right culture people and and especially as well people start thinking like a leader as well if they kind of go you know lots of there's a wonderful book i can't remember the name of the the author but it was called turn the ship around it was written by a um david marquette yeah um a naval captain who was a submariner and was in charge of um, quite, you know, quite literally turning the ship around. He took on, took a, um, you know, probably the worst naval submarines and the you know worst performing naval submarines in the U.S. Army, U.S. Navy, and and basically made everybody in that ship think like him by asking them as soon as they came to him and asked him for a question, you know, should I do this? He would say, "What do you think I will say?" What do you think I will do? You know, and he would, and all of a sudden he developed that mindset where people were going, actually, what would Dan do? Or what would, uh, actually, I can see what I'll do now. I find that quite intriguing because essentially what he's doing is, uh, I, I had a boss and he had on his office door, he'd, he'd write on his office door, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. And I think there's something in that in terms of if you are always problem focused, you're always going to be thinking about problems and therefore your whole psyche, your culture will be very uh, problem focused sort of psyche. You'll always be looking at the negative. I always try to encourage people and clearly, you know, David Marquette uh, had the same philosophy that 
you get people to think of their own solutions as well as the problem. You, you, you know what the problem is or the challenge is, but you think around that and widen your thought process to, to think of solutions. And some of these solutions might not be, might be impractical, might be impossible, might be difficult, but nonetheless, you, you think of those solutions and that feeds into this whole cognitive diversity as well. You know, no answer is a stupid answer type of thing. Mm, completely. And it sounds like you, this is something that you built into the psyche of, the whole of your your, your schools uh, where you were, but that's past you now. That's like an episode that's gone. So what does the future look like for you? I'm very interested in developing that kind of cultural organisation within other schools. I'm very interested to talk about the journey that we went on. I'm very interested and quite passionate about consultation within organisations. Mm-hmm. You know, if we think about, you know, an organization of 100 people, you know, probably less than 10% of those are making the most high profile decisions for the majority of the, the workforce. We see a lots of retention issues around uh, education, public sector. Particularly in the current climate. Definitely. And I think we've become a, a very different, I think our, our, our values have changed. I think we've, we've spent two years clinging on to our families, being close to home. And actually now we, we see work as some of us are, are more lucky than not to see maybe work as a, an option that can be changed and not something which has always been that mainstay, that actually people can start thinking different. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and with the cost of living crisis as well that's coming up, you know, how many people be willing to travel half the, that two-hour commute. I think what's happened, Dan, over the last couple of years, there's been like this recalibration of priorities because we've so many people have been so close to, I don't know, uh, illness or disaster or in their own mindset because that's what the media have been throwing at us, that uh, we've all recalibrated what's important, what's, a, what my, what's my real priority. So you might have been a workaholic two or three years ago, but for a lot of people that's now shifted, hasn't it? And it's and it's that that uh, I think it's that gap that we people like you and I are now coming into where we're seeing that uh, the, the the organizations have changed. We've seen that uh, communities have reshaped themselves, but people have now shifted their priorities. They think in a different way, and consequently, if the people are thinking in a different way, then organizations to get the very best out of these people also need to think in a different way. Uh, and we need to move away from, I mean, it was only a few years ago that I used to sit in boardroom tables where we talked about flexible working and allowing people to work from home. And, you know, you'd have the old stalwart saying, no, we're not going to do that because I can't trust them to do the work. Oh, our infrastructure is not there. We don't have the, you know, the security of the, the, the IT is not going to be there. When then literally within months we had all of that sorted and it's worked and it continues to work. So, I think organizations are going to have to think differently because the people are thinking differently. So consequently, you talk about this, this massive sort of um, gap, really, uh, a, a, the issues around retention across the whole of the public sector. And I think more in the public sector because they've been at the front face of it all, haven't they? Over the last couple of years, they've had to keep the, the, the country going, so to speak. So they are the most sort of uh, probably exhausted uh, people that we've got, you know, within the health sector i know what it's been like in education i know what it's been like in policing and you know i've been talking to dentists recently and doc gps and they're all feeling the same they're all fatigued um so it needs people to come in 
to help organizations, to guide organizations to start thinking differently, to A, retain these people. But the other big problem, uh, Dan, that I've seen is the recruitment issue, that everybody is recruiting for talent, but the pond of talent is, is decreasing for some reason. So one of the things, I guess, is if you have a really, really great culture, the culture speaks as the personality of the organization. More people are likely to join your organization. I think that's one of like the biggest uh, benefits of uh, adapting a really positive culture. And I think for me, it's about schools and organizations that I hope to work with, identifying what their culture is. Because like you say, you know, we've had a, you know, especially when we're looking at graduate you know, entry level jobs or those kinds of things. And you've seen lots of people who have had a very fragmented education background. We've seen lots of people go through their degrees um, at home, you know, virtually. And we've seen lots of children and lots of students complete their A-levels virtually. So it's that as much as there is the the, the content that's been learned and, and successfully kind of assessed, the interpersonality of those experiences of being in a sixth form college or yeah, three years at university have been sadly missed. So I think what, what organisations have got to do, and especially schools, and especially, you know, maybe other areas of the public sector is, is to have a culture where you can identify the right character. Because if you can match your culture, you have to develop a culture, first of all. But once you've developed your culture, you can find the character that fits that you can take them on the journey to develop that skill set. I think we've got to look at we're not going to find the finished article. We're not going to find people operating at the same possible level that we were before. But isn't this one of the big issues that for too long organisations have always relied upon the technical skills or the qualifications of an individual rather than the values of the individual, the, the psyche of the individual, to see will this individual actually fit into and align with the values of our organisation. Yeah. Um, I had a very interesting podcast with a deputy chief constable of a brand new police force that was being set up in Surrey, uh, uh, British Columbia in Canada. Um, and um, she was saying, look, what I've learned in policing in all the places that I've worked is that we recruit for technical skills, but I can teach those technical skills. What I want to recruit for is values. So she has been recruiting for this brand new police force, everybody based on values. And, uh, you know, I reached out to her and said, hey, how's it going? And she said, you know what? It's one of the best organisations I've ever worked for. The people here, we just gel. Everybody just seems to want to make it like the best organisation in the world. So we'll have her back on this programme. But that's exactly what you're talking about there, Dan, isn't it? It is. And, and you can move mountains with that. If you've got everybody aligned to the same values, it doesn't matter where the people are personally on their skills kind of on their skills continuum because you know you develop your skills over time and, and dare I say you could have been in profession for many many years. Does it make you the most skillful? Does it make you the you know the immediate go to? Does it make you the best? Because actually, you know, if you if you're moving through your career without the right values, you're not going to give too much notice or too too little, very little care about your skill development. But if you've got the right people tuned at the right values, there's a there's a critical mass there of of interpersonalities. There's a critical mass there about culture. There's a critical mass there about like minded people. And, you know, it sounds a bit qualitative in regards to the outcome and, you know, it sounds a bit you know, it's great that we all get on. But actually there's a lot to say in regards to how quickly that, that qualitative aspect of your organization can turn into the quantitative and 
and actually move forward with some really key measures of progress. What fantastic deep thoughts to finish on, really. And I'm going to leave it with your last message there, which is essentially we need to start moving away from measuring everything from a quantitative point of view. You know, I go into so many organizations and they will inevitably say, "Okay, so if I bring emotional intelligence into my organization, how is that going to affect my bottom line? Where are the tangible benefits? We need to shift that mindset to to have the simple understanding that a happy workforce is going to be a productive workforce. A productive workforce will deliver all of your quantitative needs uh, going forward. But you have to look after your people for Dan. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on here. We will talk, no doubt. I wish you all the best in uh, everything that you do. And I hope you get to reshape some organizations. Thank you, Cole. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.